Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines denialism as the practice of denying the existence, truth, or validity of something, despite proof or strong evidence that it is real, true, or valid. And there are people who will tell you that the Holocaust never happened, that the planet isn't warming, the Earth is flat, there's no such thing as AIDS, the January 6th protesters weren't violent, and COVID-19 is some kind of scam. The most recent book from Dr. Keith Con Harris, a writer, music critic, and sociologist who teaches at London's Leo Beck College and Birkbeck College, investigate what lies behind that thinking. Denial, the Unspeakable Truth is published by Notting Hill Editions and brings Professor Con Harris to our show now. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. You published the book before the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Are you at all surprised that despite the huge number of people who've come down with it, including many who've died, that there are still those who are calling it a hoax? No, I'm not surprised, although I'm probably uh, immensely disheartened that that these sorts of views, that anti-vaxxing views have come so close to the political mainstream, particularly in the US, but also in other countries as well, and to some extent in the UK. That has been quite depressing to watch, I think. Well, actually, hasn't there been a flood of denialism in a, a number of areas over the past couple of years? Well, yes. I mean, it's certainly true that under the Trump presidency, um, these the political mainstreaming of what were once fairly fringe ideas has massively uh, accelerated. But I suppose that I probably hoped against hope that during the pandemic, simple self-interest would have perhaps allowed some kind of pushback uh, against the worst of the anti-vaccine and anti-lockdown and anti-masking protesters. What I perhaps hadn't considered uh, as much as I should have done is how far people are prepared to go in acting against their own material self-interest, how far people will go to do things that harm themselves and others, uh, because that is what preserves their worldview. Um, I should have anticipated it going mm. this far. I probably didn't. But you've said we are all in denial, some of the time at least. Part of being human and living in a society with other humans is finding clever ways to express and conceal our feelings. And you say deceptions are not necessarily malign. At some level, they're vital if humans are to live together with civility. Yes, I did say that, and I absolutely hold on to that. Uh, Denial is a a psychological process that allows human beings to choose what they can deal with at any one time and to ensure that they are not flooded with disenchanted, disenchanting knowledge 24-7. It's necessary for survival. Um, But the problem So so then the question is, when does private self-deception become harmful to others? 
Well, it becomes problematic when it starts getting institutionalized and bolstered by others and becomes uh, a collective and an individual identity. That's one of the reasons why I make the distinction between denial and denialism. Denial is, as as I and and, and some others have uh, defined it, is, is a process of not wanting to know, of putting your hands over your ears and saying la 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 to to <laughs> block the to block knowledge out denialism goes further denialism is not just not listening to something but actively proactively trying to replace uh, one set of facts with another to try and create your own reality and as such this is not a necessary uh, psychological process, although it may well, well, it certainly does, build on uh, very fundamental psychological processes. Should we make a distinction between denialists and the so-called post-truthers, or are they pretty much the same thing? Well, in my book, I don't use the word post-truth that much, not out of a, you know, any principled objection to it, but I'm trying to develop my own vocabulary here, and I make a further distinction between denialism and post-denialism. And what I call post-denialism is kind of what, what we're talking about in terms of post-truth, whereas denialism, as we've traditionally seen it, has been about building institutions, building pseudo-academic journals, building building substantive, substantial bodies of alternate knowledge. Post-denialism is a kind of free-for-all where uh, the, the, the facade of scholarship and sobriety breaks down in favor of a multiplicity of theories constantly contending with each other, never fixing into a particularly coherent argument. And of course, Donald Trump is, was, is uh, the, the master of post-denialist discourse. And one of the things well, that... Well, you have a prime minister who, who uh, moves in that direction as well. I had, yes, had yes, that's un- right. I had the unpleasure I, I, of, of interviewing him once. Well, he is... Um, He's not identical to Donald Trump, and I think it's important no. to, 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 to remember that. But in, in the fact that he will say things for effect and mm-hmm. he will not stay uh, bound to one particular truth, he is very much in the same kind of ballpark. Uh, he probably lacks the, the more complete sociopathy uh, that, that Donald Trump has. He seems to be a little bit more grounded in the, in, in the world of, of, of general morality, as most of us are, um, a little bit more at least than Donald Trump. But certainly he's very much uh, a, a leader for our times, as is the other example would be someone like Bolsonaro in, in, mm-hmm. in Brazil, who is also very much uh, a post-denialist, post-truth political leader. And, do, the, um, do most denialists have hidden agendas? Well, could you ask if denialists could speak from the heart? What would we hear? Well, that's the uh, <laughs> that, that's the line that's on the uh, in my book. Yeah. My argument is that denialism, and here again, I'm making the distinction between denialism and post-denialism. Denialism exists because a certain desire is unspeakable that one mm. cannot 
find ways to publicly advocate a particular position or perspective on the world. And therefore, denialism allows you to do it uh, in covert means. So, for example, if you feel that uh, there should be no action against anthropogenic climate change, um, it is very difficult to speak of that publicly because mm -hmm. inevitably if you acknowledge it's happening you are going to acknowledge that if something isn't done there will be immense human suffering so denialism gets round that by saying that nothing is actually happening now post-denialism as i understand it is a step back if you like towards open acknowledgement by coming out with lines that barely make any sense at all you become very close of actually saying what it is that you actually want so post-denialism as what we're watching right now is the breaking down of the boundaries of what is speakable and what is not speakable already we are starting to see uh, certainly sections of the america right uh, barely even bothering uh, to, 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 to deny that what they are essentially looking for is a post-democratic uh, reality. So voter suppression bills are barely even cloaked as being about what they're supposed to be about. And that's quite different to, to denialism as we've understood it until now. Well, although climate change... Denialists haven't overturned the general scientific consensus that it's occurring and caused by human activity. Haven't they been effective nonetheless, even though in some cases they have been uh, they've gotten rather silly, like when uh, Senator James Imhoff brought a snowball into the Senate floor to demonstrate that climate change is a hoax. And he was the chair of the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee at the time. Yes, look, it's it, climate change denialism is a fairly broad church, and you have people like buffoonish people like Imhofer, but you also have uh, well-funded uh, institutes that produce reams of scholarly-looking articles mm -hmm. and work very, very hard to develop uh, a sober rationale for, for, for what it is they're trying to do. Now, they haven't managed to overturn the scholarly consensus, uh, but what they have managed to do is to delay action very effectively, to provide a rationale for those in politics who've, who've sought uh, to, uh, to delay action. They've also managed, and I think in, in, in some respects they opened a Pandora's box here, by this limited goal of preventing action on climate change, they haven't managed to overturn the scholarly consensus, but what they have managed to do is undermine scholarship generally to create an environment of distrust. And therefore, whilst denialism and post-denialism are not the same thing, those apparently sober global warming deniers have paved the way for things like Q, for the more, for the more, uh, hmm. if you like, anarchic forms of post-denialism that have mushroomed in the last few years. Well, they have some pretty uh, uh, powerful people supporting them, politicians, mining and fuel business leaders, lobbyists, uh, who have a lot of clout. So... 
that that must be an important factor here. And you also, along the lines of what you just said, you say denialists are desperate for the public validation that science affords that. But isn't denialism often portrayed as a war on science? And hasn't the term junk science been applied to climate change denialism? Well, actually, uh, whilst you may argue that uh, global warming denialism is junk science, it's certainly true that traditionally speaking, denialism, it, it, it does not frame itself as an assault on truth or on scholarship. It sees itself as preserving science, rationality, truth and enlightenment values. It it it. it lords and upholds these sort these sorts of values it tries its best to pose as the voice uh, of reason against what what they would see as as the junk science of climate science and again that's the difference between denialism and post-denialism because post-denialism is much less uh, concerned with maintaining a facade of scholarly rationality my guest is dr keith con harris uh, his book uh, that was published a couple of years ago, but we're updating some of the, the things he uh, he's wrote about in the book is Denial, the Unspeakable Truth. It's published by Notting Hill Editions. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. You write about being intrigued by Holocaust denial when you were in your teens. How did you explain it to yourself then? Well, so I'm 49 years old, so I grew up pre-internet, and I knew that on the margins of my society, there were all sorts of strange, uh, sinister, dangerous ideas, and I knew about them because I'd read about them. But what I never did, uh, it it took me a long time to do, was to actually encounter them in person. If you wanted if to be involved in Holocaust denial uh, in my late teens, we're talking about the late 80s, early 1990s here, then you had to really search it out. It wasn't easy. Um, so it had a kind of mystique to it. And of course, as a Jew, uh, I was never even remotely tempted to become a Holocaust denier. So I, I'd like to make that absolutely clear. But I was fascinated by it. And it took me, but it took me really until I, I went to, to, to university and actually looked at this stuff you know, it was a university that had all sorts of publications that, that I could call up and look at. But it, it, was, it was not something that was easy to find. And contrast that to today. It's, it's easy to find all this stuff with a mouse click. Mm. When I was doing the research for my book, I read quite a bit of Holocaust denial literature, all of which I found for free online. Uh, mm. it, it was just, it, there was just no barriers to doing it at all. That means two things. One is it, it means that it has it's much more accessible. It can spread much more widely uh, than it used to in the past. But it also has allowed me personally, and perhaps others too, 
uh, uh, to see it without that mystique of something being a dangerous forbidden idea. It's easier to look at this with much more clear, clear eyed than I did when I was 18 or 19 years old. That said, that's also probably to do with the fact that I'm a m- more mature and sober person than I might have been uh, at that age. But um, it doesn't go away. Uh, you cite uh, uh, some people are, are actively contributing to the creation of denialist scholarship, and you cite the libel case that Holocaust and our historian uh, David Irving brought against Deborah Lipstadt in 1996. Uh, his life and career were ruined by that, weren't weren't they? He was imprisoned in Austria in 2006 for Holocaust denial. But isn't he still writing and lecturing today? He is. I look, the, 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 I, I'm not criticizing the decision by Deborah Lipstadt and Penguin Books, her publisher, to, to fight uh, David Irving's uh, libel action with every means at their disposal. It had to be done. And one of the positives of it is that there were... David Irving did have some uh, lingering respect from mainstream historians who would say, yes, he's a Holocaust denier, but he's actually, some of his other work is useful. And, mm-hmm. and so what that, one of the positives of that trial was that it completely destroyed his reputation uh, out in, in, in mainstream scholarship. Outside that, um, whilst it has certainly been more difficult for him to, to travel, uh, for him to publish, he hasn't really recanted. He still has followers. His work can still be found online, uh, and it continues to find new followers. And that is one of the, the difficulties that we have at the moment, is that whilst we can remove individuals from particular platforms and we can marginalize them to an extent, we can't do it as completely as we used to uh, in the past, or at least it's very, very difficult uh, to do so. Even things like child pornography, uh, Mm. if you are motivated enough, you can find it. And it's much easier to find it than even now than it would have been 30, 40 years ago, when to some extent it was less stigmatized than it is today. Mm-hmm. So, in, in this sort of reality, where ideas circ- circulate and are very difficult to suppress, we have to start thinking of some very uh, uncomfortable questions about how we deal with bad and dangerous ideas um, and how we confront them in ways uh, in ways when old-fashioned suppression no longer works as well as it used to. Well, well, can laws be enacted to combat it? For example, France has prohibited Holocaust denial, but that doesn't seem to have stopped the people on France's extreme right from continuing to make the claim. Well, Deborah Lipstadt herself opposes laws against Holocaust denial. Or, uh, on because of the infringement of free speech? Partly that, but also to do with uh, a desire not to make martyrs. But even and, and, and I more or less agree with her on that. But even when you do have these laws, um, it, it, as you say, it is still they still circulate, and unless you want to play whack a mole, uh, which most police forces don't have the resources to do, 
then you have to find, then you have to acknowledge that suppression only goes so far. And then there are, is the problem of, of finding people to refute. Uh, nowadays, Holocaust survivors are dying of old age, can no longer give testimony. Well, I mean, certainly Holocaust deniers always found ways to question survivor testimony. Uh, and, and of course, survivors experience only, ha they only have one individual experience. So they could say, well, your experience was, uh, was, was idiosyncratic or you weren't seeing what you thought you were seeing. And, and of course, that's absolutely vile. But survivors did not in and of themselves prevent Holocaust denial mm -hmm. from, from emerging uh, and flourishing. One of the problems with the Irving trial, and I, I read there have been multiple accounts written of it, but in order to defend herself and her publisher, they had some of the, the world's most uh, revered and, uh, and brilliant Holocaust historians spending about a year of their life developing the case against Irving. And frankly, that is not what Holocaust historians should be doing. It's a terrible waste of their time. What they should be doing is Holocaust research. I'm very glad they did it. I'm not saying they shouldn't do it. But the process of debunking is immensely time-consuming. I, I have an old friend who runs a Holocaust denial debunking website, and it is Sisyphean task. It is a constant series of battles, and it is very rare for deniers to to recant because once one argument line of argument is exhausted, they pick up on another line of argument. And there is something about that that, that, that it seems to me that, that debunking, while it is to some extent at least necessary, it is also seems to, to, to get us dragged into their logic and mean that people waste time. And that's also the case with climate change denial. You know, someone like uh, a scientist like Michael uh, Mann uh, spends an enormous amount of time combating climate change denial, and I'm very glad that he does. But really, what he should be doing is doing research on what is an extremely urgent threat. Um, so it's really Well, sad. there are plenty of scientists doing that. Uh, you say Holocaust deniers are not trying to correct the historical record, but are, with varying degrees of subtlety, trying to show that Jews are pathological liars and fundamentally dangerous, while they rehabilitate the reputation of the Nazis to the process, although recently haven't some reversed their position and celebrated the extermination of Jews? Well, it, it's, I argue that behind denialism is an acknowledgement of what is denied. Um, one of the things that Holocaust denial does is its implications are terrifying. Because if Jews can pull off a uh, a hoax of this magnitude, they are they indeed pr uh, represent a uh, existential threat to humanity, and that's what part of the poison of what denialism is. You also find that as well in uh, climate change denial, where you do find a sort of coded uh, argument for climate change in action. And some of it being quite bru brutal. 
So it doesn't take that much to be able to show that denialism is really a form almost of celebration. And one of the things we've seen in the last few years is with denialist discipline breaking down, we are starting to see a move towards that kind of celebration and uh, speaking of one's desires openly. And that's quite a bit of thing to deal with because... It's, it's I'm, I'm, hard. Go on, sorry. No, no, finish your thought. Well, I, I think a lot of us always felt that if deniers didn't deny, then you'd have acknowledgement mm-hmm. about basic facts. But the, but I think the truth is it's much darker than that, that if deniers didn't deny the Holocaust, they would be celebrating the Holocaust. And that's an appalling prospect, particularly, as I say, as someone who is a Jew. That's not something that I welcome at all. Um, but then again, I don't welcome Holocaust denial either. Mm-hmm. So we are really caught in a bit of a cleft stick here. Well, and on another front, um, hasn't denialism been very dangerous uh, in a number of situations? For example, in early 2017, wasn't the Somali-American community in Minnesota struck by a childhood measles outbreak? How did denialism, what what impact did that have, uh, did it have on that? Well, one of the things that anti-vaxxers before the covid uh, uh, crisis. What, one of the things they were doing is they weren't getting much traction uh, in, in, in the mainstream Western societies. So they strategically targeted societies that might be more vulnerable uh, to their arguments, and that included, as in that in that well-known case of uh, of, Somal- uh, of Somalis in America. Uh, but the, the, the best example uh, that's related to that, it's not quite the same as anti-vaxxing, it was uh, the, the, the efforts that AIDS denialists uh, made to normalize denialism in South Africa. And they managed to ensnare the then uh, president of South Africa, Thabo uh, Mbeki. And hundreds, hundreds of thousands died. Because 330,000 people is estimated. Something like that. It's hard to, yeah. to get the exact amount. Uh, they, they were denying that there was a link between HIV and AIDS and even well, the, questioned HIV's existence. Well, there are various schools of thoughts within AIDS denialism, but what it basically came down to was was they managed to convince uh, um, uh, Tabo and Becky to be skeptical about rolling out retrovirals in South Africa, yeah. and that had a catastrophic effect. And so there are particular societies that may be more vulnerable uh, to, or, or, or minorities within other societies that are, that are more vulnerable. And you see something like that within COVID, although it's become much more mainstream, that it isn't uh, the entire entirety of America or the entirety of the US or the entirety of, of wherever else that are refusing va- vaccines. The majority are uh, accepting vaccines, but it is particular, uh, particular, if you like, hotspots within particular countries. In America, it's there is a stark difference between red states and blue states in their vaccine uptake list. But you also get, certainly in Britain, uh, for reasons that 
uh, are not helped by d- denialism, but aren't just to do with denialism, that you've got certain ethnic minority communities have had to have very special outreach measures uh, to them in order to combat uh, uh, skepticism and anti-vaccine in those communities. What happened in South Africa? After all of those hundreds of thousands of people died, was the policy changed? Uh, did Mbeki uh, then uh, admit that maybe he'd made a mistake? I don't think he uh, ever acknowledged that to the fullest. But as uh, over, over time, he, he he became put under so much pressure that he eventually had to relent to an extent. And subsequent South African governments have been better at that. But uh, one thing, I think I say this in my book, in fact, is that Thabo Mbeki may be one of very few or maybe even unique example of denialism motivated by something that was actually speakable, not a, uh, not a secret furtive desire, but something that was actually quite laudable, which is he, he, was, he was a thinker and, uh, and a leader who did not want the new South Africa that he was trying to build. He was the, he was the successor to Nelson Mandela. He did not want South Africa to be associated with sickness, with sexual promiscuity, and with that kind of stuff. So he became, for all the right reasons, he became vulnerable to the entreaties of people who did not have such high motives. And it's a terribly sad story and and a horrible story. My guest is Dr. Keith Con Harris, writer, music critic, sociologist. Uh, he's written a book called Denial, the Unspeakable Truth, published by Notting Hill Editions. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. But we don't believe you. We don't believe you. We don't believe you anymore. We don't believe you. We don't believe you. We don't believe you anymore. And they'll pass the buck and cover well, Let's get back to our conversation about denialism. Um, you say that denialists are desperate for the public validation that science affords, but isn't, uh, well, I ask if it is often seen as a war on science. Um, how do they, but they, they, they look to scholarship, they try to explain what they're doing as, as acceptable alternative scientific theory? Or historical, yes, or at least denialism traditionally did that, and yeah. and that is one of the similarities with post-denialism, is that is that both have a kind of there's a kind of excitement at work there. There's something thrilling about it. One thing that if you ever talk to to anti-vaxxers during the pandemic, that they will say is do your research, do your research, which of course in this case means do some Googling on and, and find sources that, that confirm your view, your view. But denialism, even when it's in its more sober kind, where you are uh, trying to produce a simulacrum of, of legitimate scholarship, there is a sense that this is a thrilling journey. That the 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 difficulties, the challenge of of overturning established scholarly thought, 
is a kind of adventure. And in doing so, it's quite common to invoke the names of of, of scientists and scholars throughout the age who overturned established truths. Galileo in particular. Mm-hmm. This is, of course, a logical f- fallacy called the Galileo fallacy or the Galileo gambit. And what that means is it's a logical fallacy because you say, uh, I am persecuted for my beliefs. Galileo was persecuted for, her, for his beliefs. Therefore, I am Galileo. Um, but it is certainly true that uh, there is no point in hiding the fact that uh, certain scholarly uh, truths have been overturned throughout history and doubtless will in the future. But it isn't the kind of scholarly truths uh, that denialists talk about, and it isn't done the way that they do it. So the standard way that a, that an old paradigm gives way to a new paradigm is that a new paradigm can explain much more than the old paradigm uh, ever ever could. Now, if you take the example of uh, creationism, the denial of evolution, there's a huge there's a particular theory called uh, intelligent design, which argues that the complexity of of, of, of of natural life is such that it is too complex to have uh, evolved naturally. And therefore, the uh, only logical uh, conclusion is that it had to have been uh, designed. Now, the problem with that is that even if you accept the argument, which of course I don't, that, there, that the complexity of things such as the human eye is such that it could not have evolved, even if you accept that argument, the, the postulation of a, a designer does not explain more than the old theory does. But isn't that, that a variation of a literal interpretation of the, the Old Testament? Well, intelligent design uh, is perhaps a more sophisticated version of, of what has been called young earth creationism. So there is, there is intelligent design doesn't necessarily say that the world was created in seven days. It just says the evidence of science suggests that, that the world was created by a designer. Mm-hmm. Um, and but, but either way, it comes down to the same thing, is that this new theory does not explain more than the old theory does. And it's the same with, with all denialism, because if you accept any of them as true, you are left with mysteries that are actually more profound and actually tell you much less uh, than what you had left behind. So one thing Holocaust deniers can never have never really managed to answer is if this was all a massive hoax how was it carried out what were the logistics of it so actually if you accept holocaust denial what you're really doing is plumping for a theory that tells you much less than the existing theory does and that is that is not how scholarship works well how is um, what's gained by calling covid-19 a hoax well, I think we have to acknowledge here um, the, the, the extraordinary diversity of views that are being expressed in this area, uh, in America, in the, in the UK, and around the world. And they haven't necessarily congealed into uh, uh, one uh, counter-orthodoxy, if you like. 
so and that's again that's that's something that's quite uh, characteristic of post-denialism, where you don't really have an orthodoxy. You just have multiple theories uh, all being thrown out there without any real commitment to any one of them. So some of them will, there will be people who talk about it in terms of 5G and tracking and, uh, and that kind of thing. There will be people who argue it on similar grounds to the way that AIDS denialists do. There are people who uh, deny that viruses themselves exist. There are people who acknowledge that uh, COVID exists, but that it is trivial and that it has been exploited for sinister ends by particular shadowy elites. And of course, who those elites are varies according to taste. So you've got this this whole buffet, if you like, of different theories why the established uh, narrative is a hoax. And that allows it to appeal to people coming from a lot of different uh, directions. Some of the people, for some people who embrace this kind of thing, it's simply an extension. They may have histories in this kind of alternative knowledge going back years. So this is just a natural uh, kind of extension of that. But for other people, it, it comes from uh, have been primed through it through uh, through other means. So, for example, there 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 are, there are cases where some marginalised groups who have been subject to racism, who have histories of being experimented on, um, have uh, see this have been have been primed, if you like, and actively in some cases to see COVID as an extension of this. Hmm. On the other hand, you have particularly... You mean, mean African-Americans who uh, were given venereal diseases as a That kind of thing, experiment. that kind of thing. So there is a genuine history of that. Um, uh, but that isn't to say that they are necessarily the one, ones who've come up, who've made the connection between that and COVID. It's often been encouraged externally, as was the case with the, 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 the anti-vaxxers uh, uh, exploiting uh, Somalis and South Africans. Um, it, in other cases, it's to do with it's, it. It fits in with a wider descent into conspiracism within uh, particular kinds of Trump supporters. For some people, it is an extension of libertarianism which doesn't necessarily deny that COVID is there, but sees that individual freedom is so paramount that in the case of a pandemic, any kind of collective action against that represents uh, an existential threat to human liberty. So there's this whole buffet uh, of ways of understanding COVID uh, that appeal to people coming from very different backgrounds. Uh, don't people also see these as... Uh as um, well, having political or uh, well ways of of, uh, of of affecting our lives. For example, on November 6, 2012, when he was already preparing to run for president, Donald Trump sent a tweet about climate change that said the concept of global warming was created by and for the Chinese in order to make U.S. manufacturing non-competitive. Now, I don't know whether he invented that. Uh, but, well, I think. Go on. Sorry. No, no. But uh, th th that was uh, th he then went on to win the presidency, and later 
Despite evidence to the contrary, millions of Americans believe that the 2020 election was stolen. Is that an example of denialism as well? Well, as I say, I think Trump is more of a, of a post-denialist in the sense that that particular tweet, that was an argument, that was a tweet he did once. And I don't, as far as I know, he never made that particular argument again. But that, of course, was his modus, is his modus operandi. He just throws things out there. They don't cohere into uh, a, a finished whole. They are just simply a relentless uh, cascade uh, of claims. And the net effect has been to create uh, a, a wave of distrust, if you like, that is hugely uh, insidious. Because when you feel that you're being constantly lied to, uh, that undermines your faith in experts, uh, in established uh, in established knowledge. But it is different to what denialists have traditionally done. Uh, denialists would not would not traditionally have made as crude a claim as Donald Trump had made. They would make a much more technical claim based on, for example, uh, the idea that human uh, human climate. Uh, Earth, the Earth's climate is too complex to be uh, effectively modelled, or they will make a claim about how the population of polar bears in northern Canada <laughs> are actually not declining after all. Um, the, the the kind of audacity of Trump was would be to take was to take that much more careful kind of uh, attempt to build a counter scholarly tradition and just turn it into a series of incoherent claims that nonetheless had a had a profound effect on political discourse, not just in America, but worldwide as well, because he showed the way. He showed the way for populists around the world. He showed how, what could be done, and others are following his lead, and others were already uh, who, who were already on the same page, like our Prime Minister in Britain, Boris Johnson, have been empowered to go even further. Uh, the 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 most outrageous form of denialism is people who continue to subscribe to flat Earth theories when. <laughs> All you have to do is go up in an airplane and you know that that's not true. Um, how did things like that persist? One of the ways that, that I that I try to understand uh, people like Flat Earthers is, is, is by reading what they write, by watching the videos they produce. And as I said before, one of the things that really, really strikes me is the excitement of it all. It doesn't mean they're necessarily people who are having fun, but to take on a challenge as massive, as grotesque, as, as showing that the earth is not round as we are being led to believe is an extraordinary endeavor. It's a life-changing endeavor. And it shows that one can see through the way the world appears to be and see it as it actually is. Now, that's immensely empowering. And if we think about modern science, if we think about uh, it is immensely disempowering because the, the, the nature of modern scholarship and scientific knowledge is so incredibly specialized that most of us haven't actually haven't got a hope 
of understanding uh, 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 understanding uh, scientific knowledge other than in outline terms. So something like flat, what what something like flat earthers do is that by undermining what is probably the most one of the one of the most fundamental accepted truths uh, by you sort of cut off scientific knowledge at the source and make oneself the master of that or the mistress of it you make yourself as the person who can see the world who can who, who can remove the veil of disinformation from one's eyes that's a very very powerful thing and for people like me who 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 have to accept that they only know about a tiny fraction of why the world is as it is I'm not sure what I can offer <laughs> that's as good as that or someone like me can offer. Because even the proofs we have that the world is round aren't necessarily simple or at least beyond a basic level. I'm talking about denialism with Dr. Keith Con harris uh, author of a book called Denial, the Unspeakable Truth, which is published by Notting Hill Editions. Denial uh, sometimes, uh, well, teaching the history of slavery in this country has become a political football, what's being called critical race theory. Uh, what's to be achieved by preventing school children from learning about a major part of our history? Uh, is it a, a form of denial? I think it, it, it often is. Um, of course, the whole issue with the debate about critical race theory, which which is not confined to America, although it's certainly strongest there, um, is part of the part of the nature of it is is that is that whilst there is a thing called critical race theory, its opponents create their own idea of what critical race theory actually is. And it's become quite apparent that rather than a, a, a critique of, of, of a particular body of knowledge, it is the opposition to critical race theory is nothing less than an opposition to teaching about race and racism. So it provides, uh, by setting up this straw, straw man, straw person, it provides an effective way in to undermining a, a, a much a much more fundamental understanding of American history or, or, or global history. I don't think there is any uh, denialism that there was such a thing as slavery. Such a thing as slavery. Uh, well, but there, were, but there uh, has but been denial. There has been denial. We're, we're getting an echo there. Uh, there has been denialism uh, in Turkey. The Turkish state has refused to admit that the 1950 Armenian genocide took, uh, occurred. But that's a, a, a fact of history. So what effect does that have on the country's Armenian minority today? Well, I think that we have to understand here that genocide is something that human beings have been doing to other human beings for, for a very long time, for millennia. But something changed in the modern period in that this thing that human beings have done to other human beings, because it remains something that humans want to do to other humans, but the language to celebrate it and to acknowledge it becomes withers away. Mm. So 
I'm not aware of uh, a genocide, certainly in the last 100, 100, 150 years, that has not been subsequently been denied right up to the Rwandan genocide or the, the genocide again, that's currently going on against the Uyghur people uh, in, in China. It is very mm-hmm. difficult to find a language to celebrate genocide these days. And as I say, genocide denial provides a way of of, of legitimating it using covert means. But I think the, the, the issue of slavery in America is slightly different because you can't deny that people in America bought and sold other human beings. That was, you know, that that is impossible to deny. So what's happened instead is, is using uh, a, a much more subtle set of strategies, or sometimes not so subtle, in fact, such as, for example, talking about how uh, owners most owners uh, treated their slaves well because they were property and therefore they had to take care of them. Or, for example, making the argument that uh, slavery was something that human beings have done throughout history, but America actually abolished it. Or, for example, denying uh, the fact that after slavery was formally abolished, a system developed certainly in the American South that preserved at least some of uh, the institutions of slavery through other means. Um, so it, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's not a strategy of, of complete denialism as we've seen in Armenian genocide denial or Holocaust denial. What you've seen is, is something that is, is just as serious and just as bad, but perhaps more insidious. Another recent uh, development, members of the 9-11 Truth Movement believe that the official story of uh, the September 11th attacks was a lie and that elements in the U.S. government had foreknowledge of the attacks and, and let them happen. They also have other theories as well about uh, Israel and the Mossad, etc. But uh, what's going on there? I mean, it's obviously something that was witnessed by an awful lot of people, so we can't deny that it happened. And we even know the, uh, the, the people who were on the planes. So is this just a matter of twisting the truth to satisfy uh, a personal uh, prejudice? I think the significance of the 9-11, what they, they call themselves the 9-11 truth movement, is that it was the first... Um, first mass event that uh, to be denied that occurred during the uh, when when the internet had become more than a, a marginal mm-hmm. phenomenon. Uh, one of the things that that did is it allowed. I mean, this was pre-social media, but certainly internet bulletin boards and, and online publications were a major uh, a major thing back then. What that meant is that there were a plurality of quote unquote theories explaining uh, what what happened then, and they range from relatively relatively sober but nonetheless insidious, such as people talking about uh, pointing out that there were opportunities missed uh, to apprehend uh, Al Qaeda and because of that, we can conclude that there was foreknowledge. It ranges from that to things that are incredibly outlandish. One of the most outlandish things I saw was that is what's known as the no flaws theory. 
which is the uh, the World Trade Center was effectively empty. Mm-hmm. And there's a sub there's a subspecies of nose floors theorists who argue that what the World Trade Center was was uh, t- uh, towers to generate free electricity f- from the air, as discovered by Tesla. Tesla being a major figure in a lot of conspiracy theories, um, and but it was hidden for us that we can get free electricity from the air. I don't know the reason why suddenly they were destroyed. So you get this enormous range there. But the important thing is that the people with different uh, different theories there managed most of the time to coexist fairly well, even if their their theories may be diametrically opposed to each other. Because what's important is questioning the official narrative. What you actually come up so the, with at the end of it, the, the journey is in a way much more important than the destination. So whether it was something that the government was looking for, whether the Jews and Israels and the Mossad were behind it, even though... Uh, this was obviously not a Jewish thing, or that shadowy forces in the New World Order were behind it. Uh, people come up with explanations that fit all of their preconceived notions. It's more about, it, 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 yes, it, it is that. It is that people's pre, pre, uh, pre-existing notions have to be conferred. But it's... But, but we shouldn't ignore the fact that conspiracy theories and, and denialisms can have their own can take on their own momentum. We've seen that there was an article published recently in the Huffington Post talking about how what it's like to, if you like, lose a family, lose a family member to anti-vaxxing, to Q and stuff like that. That once you open yourself to a lot of these ideas it takes on a momentum and you can end up in a place that is very very different from where you started off i have to leave it there unfortunately i've run out of time but thank you so much i've been speaking with dr keith con harris his book denial the unspeakable truth is published by notting hill editions it's been a fascinating conversation thank you thank you very much i enjoyed it And that brings us to the end of today's show. If you like what you've heard, you can access our archive of over 500 shows at WBAI.org. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are links to all of our past interviews at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. And write to me there. A listener tried to write to me on Facebook during the show, and it's impossible for me to open that while I'm on the air. Before I go, I need to ask you to consider supporting WBAI by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 right now so that this show can continue coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. We need your help to keep this historic station on the air because it's the only one in New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. 
So why not make that call right now and ensure that the show and the station that brings it to you will be here in the years to come. And one great way to show your support for what we do on London Dolpate at Large is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. And they provide this station with a steady, stable source of support, something we need now more than ever. But however you choose to donate, what matters is that you join your fellow listeners who keep this alternative to corporate radio alive and well through the generosity. Again, the number to call to make your tax-deductible contribution, 212-209-2950, or go online to give to wbai.org. And we're right now, we are experiencing terrible financial difficulties. We really need your support. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And thank you so much if you have. We're off tomorrow, but I hope you can join us for Wednesday's show when author and political strategist Gary Ginsburg will discuss his new book called Fast Friends, the powerful, unsung and unelected people who shaped our presidents. We'll see you then.